straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Edinburgh. Christian theology says that humans are made in the image of God. But what does that mean? Does it mean that we are rational beings with free will? And what is free will anyway? In today's episode, I sit down with Aku Vasala to chat about human nature and free will. Aku tells us about different understandings of the image of God and human freedom. He also tells us what recent proposals in cognitive science have to say about human freedom and rationality. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Aku and I talking about ourselves. Enjoy. Aku, thank you so much for being on the show today. So I want to talk about human freedom in theological and scientific perspective. So to start the conversation, let's start with your understanding of human nature. So as a theologian, like we often say that humans are made in the image of God, but theologians endorse different theories about what the image of God is. So why don't you start by just telling me what are some of the different theories on the Imago Dei? First of all, thank you, Ryan. It's it's a great pleasure and privilege to to be interviewed for your illustrious podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm really happy to be to be one of the the people interviewed and to be included. But to the the, the question of Imago Dei, so there have been in theological debates there have been all sorts of views of on on the Imago Dei and and what it means. Only recently, people have started to classify these views in in different ways and. Kind of standard classification nowadays is is usually that there are at least three different types of views on the Imago Dei. Okay, and and one is uh, is something that's considered quite traditional, which is usually called the structural view or simply the soul view, uh, according to which the Imago Dei in in human beings is is identified with a specific kind of con- uh, component of what is. Uh, uh, some some properties of of psychological properties, some other properties that the individual individual humans have, and traditionally this has been associated with the soul, or having a soul, or having a mind. Sometimes even having an immaterial soul, something like that. But the idea there, in the structural view, is that what makes this specific part of human beings Imago Dei is that it somehow reflects the way that God is. Mm-hmm. So so there's some sort of analogy between human humans and God, and God has a mind, God is an immaterial mind, well, what, what makes humans Imago Dei is that, that, that they have a similar kind of mind. They have an immaterial mind which gives them certain capacities and powers uh, that they can then uh, have in the world. So, so this is the structural view. There are many different versions of it, uh, but but yes, uh, this, is, this is number one. But there are a couple of other views as well that are that have recently become quite popular. So so the second one is uh, is what is sometimes called a functional or a functional view of the image of God. And this functional view locates the image not in some internal psychological component or metaphysical component of, of human beings, but with the kind of mission. Uh, that human beings are given, so it's a, it's 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 really a form of invitation okay. of, of some kind. So so human beings are imago dei by virtue of having a certain mission in the world, a God given mission. So God has said that uh, that you should you know rule over, or have dominion over the world, and take care of everything that is in there, and then take care of yourselves and things like that. And this calling, this mission, it constitutes the image of God, and and all the other 
beings in the world, stones and animals mm-hmm. and, and all, all the other beings, they don't have this kind of mission. They might have a different right. vision. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is what makes humans uh, the image of God. And then there's the third view, uh, which is also which has also become quite popular in the last 100 years or so. And sometimes it's called a relational view. Again, there are different ways of, of uh, fleshing it out. But the basic idea is somehow that humans have uh, a very specific capacity of standing in relations to one another and the created world and God. So because of this, this and, and it's not just that they have this very special power to stand in relations, but they are also shaped by these relations in a way that no other species or no other thing in this world is. And again, I guess there is an analogy there too, so uh, with God and humans, uh, because this relational view is often driven by Trinitarian considerations, and, and especially in the 20th century, Trinitarian theology has emerged yet again as, as a very uh, fruitful way of thinking about many theological issues. And the idea is that, that God is essentially relational, uh, because God is Trinity, uh, there's the Trinity, and, and the, the, uh, the differences between these persons of the Trinity are based on the, the internal relationships of them. And then the idea is that the humans reflect God in the same way, not not having the not having the kind of internal relationship that God's ha- God has, uh, but having this capacity for relationships and being shaped and being defined in terms of these relationships. And and these are the three most popular views. I guess they sometimes overlap, and it's not clear that we can actually pass them apart. Mm-hmm. But this is usually the way that people, let's say, map out the territory. Right. So, okay, I want to make sure I'm following. So I've got this sort of substantial or structural view, and I've got the mission view and the relational view. Yeah. Okay. So in some of your papers, you've you've defended this structural or the substantial view. And I want to get into that in a minute, but I want to, I want to back up for a second here. So something you've pointed out in your publications is that this view has become very unpopular in 20th century theology. Like, why is that? Well, there are a number of reasons why, 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 why this has happened. And again, it's, it starts from the basic assumption or the, or the basic claim that the structural view is somehow standard mm-hmm. in the history. So when you go back, what you oftentimes find that you find these functional aspects and relational aspects, but you also see a very strong uh, association between the idea of having a mind or having a soul and the Imago Dei. And, and this all re- already gives you the re- one reason why uh, a number of theologians have been critical of the structural view in the last hundred years, uh, because is that one is that dualism, the idea that, that there are that, that we are souls or have souls as kind of necessary components mm-hmm. and non-physical souls, this has fallen out of favor. Right. So, so this is one reason why people have become more critical of the structural view because it's associated with a, a certain view of, of persons and bodies uh, that a number of theologians, for all sorts of different reasons, have uh, attempted to reject or or kind of explicitly rejected. So, so that's one reason. But there are also a number of other reasons. Uh, the second reason, I guess, is mainly from biblical studies. And and the people in biblical studies have, especially from the nineteen uh, fifties and sixties onwards, have, uh, have have tried to understand what the the Imago Dei language in Genesis and in the in, in in the scriptures as a whole, what that language means, and and it's not at all clear that they are referring to in to to a very specific component as a kind ah, of structural sure. component in the in the text. 
uh, more likely what's going on there is is some sort of functional view and this is exactly where the functional view comes from so a number of biblical scholars said that that what's what's going on in the biblical text is that that when people are named imago dei uh, it means that they have a certain uh, representational relationship with mm-hmm. god so they are kind of representatives of god on earth so this this idea of being in the image of God was was a, was a nomiker giving to kings. So a king could then interpret the will of God mm-hmm. and and implement it in in the world. But it seems that Genesis wants to say it wants to equalize the idea of of image of God that it's it's not just the king who's the image of God but all human beings. Right. So all human beings uh, stand in a specific relationship with God and the created world, uh, a kind of regal <laughs> regal view of the image of God. So. So people are given this task of representing God's intentions and will on earth. And, and, and this is where the, the functional view comes from. And, and this, uh, this argument has been quite popular. And, and many, many people have been convinced by this. And that's the reason why they, they turn from the structural view towards the, uh, towards the functional view. Okay, so I've got two kinds of reasons against this in the 20th century thought. One is it just the biblical witness seems to be going in a different direction. And then the first one is that, well, the idea of a soul that just becomes a dirty word uh, in, in Christian thought. It's just yeah. we don't like dualism. There are also a few few other reasons that one might give. Uh, so let me just raise one. Mm-hmm. Of course, what happened in the 19th century was the, the introduction of evolutionary biology and sure, Darwin. Right. Uh, and and a lot of theologians have responded to this, especially in the 20th century, by by adopting an evolutionary view of of humans and animals as far as they could, and 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 usually the kind of basic intuition that people have had is that if one accepts an evolutionary view of human origins and the human relationship to other animals mm-hmm. and so on, the evolutionary view that somehow rules out. The structural view, because right. the structural view somehow uh, assumes that that humans are unique, uh, that there's something unique about the human mind. There's a human soul, something supernatural about humans, uh, and and this doesn't fit into the evolutionary picture. And and this is, I guess, one again one of the main reasons uh, why people have have moved away from uh, from the structural view. I of course think that that there is no in principle, incompatibility between an evolutionary view of humans mm-hmm. and the structural view. Uh, but many people have thought that. Right. Okay. So you've laid out three different reasons here for why someone might reject this substantial or structural view. So given all of that, why do you think we should defend the structural view today? Well, there are a number of reasons why one might still stick to the structural view. One, I think, is that if you look at these two views closely, if you look at the, the functional view and the relational view, it seems to me that they at least partly assume something like mm-hmm. the structural view. So if, if one considers the, the missionary view or the, or the representational view or, the, or the, the view according to which to be an image of God is to, is to have a certain kind of calling in mm-hmm. the world, well, it doesn't make much sense uh, for from God's perspective to to assign or assign that call or give that call to rocks right. or rabbits because it seems that rocks rabbits hippos alligators other animals plants they just don't have what it takes to to do that right. to, to 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 serve in such a role as as humans uh, as as homo sapiens are called to serve so it seems to me that 
something like not necessarily human uniqueness but 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 homo sapiens needs to have some specific capacities that are well suited or apt for this kind of function or this right. this, this kind of calling mm-hmm. and if we don't have those if there's really no difference between us and other animals uh, then uh, then i don't see why that call cannot be extended to mm-hmm. to to other other beings uh, as well so so it seems to me that in order for us to to have this function and, and in order for us to serve this function something something like the structural bit something some some components have to be be there uh, so and the same thing could be said about the relational relational view so so if we are supposed to stand in a very specific kind of relationship with one another and god and creation as a whole it seems that in order for us to be able to stand in those kinds of relationships we have to be cognitively speaking and physically speaking and biologically speaking very specific kind of being right uh, plants can only stand in certain kinds of relationships with one one another other animals uh, apart from from Homo sapiens, they can stand in different kinds of relations. But but it seems that there is a uh, there are all sorts of relationships, loving altruistic relationships, relationships of charity, things like that, that only humans are capable of of having. Mm-hmm. So again, it seems to me that if you want the relational view, what you need is is some sort of an account of why this particular brand of animals this homo sapiens right. animals have this capacity to mm-hmm. form the kinds of relationships that then reflect the kind of relationship that god is supposed to have right. uh, th- things like that so i think this for me is the main reason why it's difficult to ditch completely the structural view right okay so say i'm god and i'm trying to figure out well i want creatures that i can be in this kind of relationship with or i want creatures that can have this particular mission well if i'm a perfectly rational god i'm going to make sure that i've got a good reason for selecting the particular kind of creatures to fit whatever mission i have or whatever kind of relationship i have and you're going to say well right so what would be the most fitting thing for me to do would be to select creatures that have particular kind of cognitive capacities because otherwise, it doesn't make any sense why I'd select them to serve this particular mission or to have this kind of relationship. Something like that is that kind of the idea here? Yes, yes, and and, and one could uh, one could support that or add to that. And, and some people have said that, well, well, God then when God chooses to bestow this uh, this certain status to to a group of uh, group of biological organisms, Homo sapiens, for instance, God not only attributes this. And then stands in the relationship with them, mm-hmm. uh, but also does some sort of special move <laughs> that that creates something special. That yeah. by addressing uh, by addressing humans by addressing these uh, organisms, something new is created by that address itself. Uh, and this could be added to the structural view and say uh, and, and and be said that when God ta- starts to talk and and starts to have a relationship with human beings, uh, human beings become something else that they that they were before that mm-hmm. so so this is one way to to kind of expand or enlarge the uh, the, the structural view and also make it and I'll take this into take into account some of these aspects of the functional view mm-hmm. for instance which usually include this idea of god calling human beings or talking to human beings so uh, initiating a relationship with them and with that relationship comes something else. But again, uh, there needs to be, at least as far as I can see, uh, there needs to be some set of capacities in order for these beings to understand even the relationship mm-hmm. that God uh, is, 
Vatican takes with them. So, so there needs to be some sort of ground because God just can't talk to rocks right. without making them non-rocks. If, if God gives them a mind and then they speak, well, they're not rocks anymore. They're something else. Uh, so, so there has to be something that makes it possible for us to understand God's communication and, and the, the things like that. So there, there seems to be no way out of, 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 of the, at least some structural aspects. So some sort of cognitive capacities to engage in reason and rationality to comprehension, these sorts of things. Those are the, like some of the underlying cognitive capacities. Yes, and I would also say uh, what we've learned from contemporary cognitive science and, and developmental psychology is that, that these capacities are not distinct uh, when, when you really go down, when you, when you look at how these the systems work, they're not really distinct uh, from the specific kind of sociality mm-hmm. that we have. Okay. So, so it's not like reason and logic are somehow separated completely from mm-hmm. the kind of sociality. Okay. So, so the kind of mind that we have is relational. In, in, in that very basic sense. Mm-hmm. So we have these social capacities, and f- through those social capacities, languages, language emerges, moral sense, mm-hmm. uh, understanding of moral norms, understanding of reasons for action, planning for the future, uh, and these are all connected. So, so human reason is not disconnected from the kind of sociality and cultural mm-hmm. nature that we have as a species. So in that sense, if you want... Uh, a kind of reasonable species mm-hmm. what what you have to produce is is a species who has a very specific kind of social social capacity mm-hmm. so so these are all connected so i'm social and i have the ability to be social because i've got these other cognitive capacities already and so the more you build in my ability to reason communicate and so on then you can start talking about well that's why you also have the ability to be altruistic why you have the ability to engage in loving relationships with other creatures these sorts of things is that kind of the idea well Actually, or they just go hand there's, in hand. There's, there's interesting evidence to suggest, especially a cognitive scientist and developmental primatologist, Michael Tomasello. Mm-hmm. He's basically argued uh, after a lifetime of work on, on comparative work on children and, and primates and 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 also all sorts of other beings. He's basically uh, he's basically argued that. It goes the it goes the other way around. Oh, okay. So so this capacity for language and these capacities for abstract thinking they are undergirded by more basic social systems. Mm. Mm-hmm. So so the sociality comes first. Uh, the the ability to take another person's point of view, the ability to to share a, a world of of intentions, reasons for action, shared goals, things like that. So we human beings share a world in in a way that no other being does, mm-hmm. and and this is the bedrock. And on that bedrock, then uh, the ability to speak abstract languages, to to construct abstract ideas, and share these abstract ideas, and to have reason in this kind of abstract and strong sense. Mm-hmm. It's only possible when we have this kind of sociality in place. So, so that's their view. This is the, mm-hmm. driven by all sorts of evolutionary considerations and, and interesting research. We could talk a lot about that, but sure. we'll, we'll put that aside. But, yeah. but this, this would be an interesting twist in the story. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're born with reason and then this other stuff comes in. No, sociality is something that comes first. Mm-hmm. And if you look at evolutionary history, you see complex sociality and, and culture. Uh, emerging and 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 that that's the kind of starting point for then the the development of more abstract reasoning and and things like that okay 
so okay so i find this quite interesting because there's a lot of stuff i would i would like to push on on in terms of like uh, emotions and uh, empathy and whatnot because that's relates to a book i've just finished writing but um i want to focus instead on this issue of uh, reason-based action because that's one of the things you talked about one of the cognitive capacities that that's uniquely human or unique to humans in some sense so let's let's get into that a bit here so when we talk about reason-based actions that kind of raises issues about free will and moral responsibility. And and so I want to start with this question. What is free will? Well, of course, as as we all know, there are a lot, lot of different views of <laughs> right, what, what yeah. free will is yeah, yeah. And, and what it means. But if we if we start by linking it to this evolutionary, specific evolutionary mm-hmm. history that we have and the specific human capacities, I would say even hum- unique unique cognitive capacities that we humans have. And this is actually what I think. I think humans are the only species that have the capacity to, to have free will or mm. act freely. And if, if you look at it from a cognitive point of view, in order to have something like free will, I think a co- couple of things are needed. One is that you have to be able to plan for the future. Okay. So, so this ability to think in counterfactual terms and construct scenarios of what might happen, a counterfactual thinking as a whole, simulating future, uh, simulating the future. This is something that we humans are rather good at compared to other species. Apparently, this has to do with consciousness. So consciousness mm-hmm. might be the main thing uh, that is needed for running simulations about the future and things like that. This makes us extremely inventive. So, so we can take ideas, things like that, and then test them, kind of simulate things in our minds. So we can have our plans and ideas uh, die instead of ourselves. Right. So, so this is, again, something that we need. But that's not enough. One also needs some sort of control over actions. So there has to be a set of mechanisms that selects from all the potential or the possible actions that one might have, uh, then, you know, the ones that one implements. So these are the kinds of mechanisms that, at least as far as I can see, are needed for free will. And then on top of that, one has to have some sort of regulatory system for emotions, things like that. But I guess the core idea here is that that if you want free will, what you need psychologically is that you have to have some sort of ability to evaluate once the, the possible actions or in the light of what might happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then you have to have some reasons to act in a specific way and then to anticipate what might happen if, if I act in a specific way. So, and this is cognitively extremely demanding. Right. So, so one has to do a lot of cognitive work in order to be able to process reasons in this way. So, uh, but it seems that uh, we human beings sometimes at least do this. And our action and, and our behavior because of this is extremely flexible uh, uh, and extremely sensitive to circumstances, much more than any other species. And especially to circumstances that are social and cultural. So we can take into account other people's intentions, other people's expectations, and we can regulate our behavior on that basis. And that begins to sound like me. Uh, to, to me, it begins to sound like at that something like free will or right. these basic components of, of free will. Mm-hmm. So my ability to kind of anticipate what will happen, my ability to uh, force, not exactly foresee, but kind of predict or run scenarios of what I might do. And then, and then the ability to say, I want to make these actions for this reason. Yeah. Those are some of the main, main components for free will. Yeah. Okay. So it, so in some of your work on free will, you've pointed out that philosophers, they offer lots of different analyses of the different conditions for free will. So what are just like three different accounts of the conditions for free will that philosophers are endorsing these days? 
Well, there are many, many views on, on free will out mm-hmm. there, but I think it's useful to classify them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and I offer a very crude classification uh, of three classes of free will going from less demanding to more demanding. Okay. So let's call the first group of views uh, free will light, mm-hmm. or light version of free will. What's the kind of bedrock or, or the minimal view of free will that people have? Well, uh, this minimal view uh, is, is something as follows. So the agent, who, whom we're considering, the agent uh, acts rationally uh, without any kind of external or internal compulsion. So this seems to me a kind of bedrock or minimal view, as I was outlining before, that, mm-hmm. that there is uh, this reasonable action. A person acts for reasons uh, and acts on in according to intentions, things like that. Uh, and at the same time, those actions are not a product of uh, some sort of necessitating external influence, mm-hmm. nor are they products of some sort of internal compulsions, uh, like mental disorders mm-hmm. or, or or some sort of uh, addictions, uh, mental, uh, all sorts of different kinds of disorders that might have sure. mentally or physically. So when those are ruled out, what is left is some sort of Actions are going to fall under reasons. You can mm-hmm. make sense of people's uh, actions and behaviors on the basis of the reasons they have to act, and that that's the that seems to me the the bottom line. So this is the bedrock. So so taking a breath, like I don't freely take a breath because like that's just kind of naturally compulsed to to breathe. But going and getting a, like an ice cream cone, I've got a reason for that. Uh, like you know because it tastes awesome, and, and then I've got the ability to do so. So like that's more uh, an, an intentional action. It's not internally compulsed like my breathing is, and you're not holding a gun to my head. So there's nothing external like yeah. uh, coercing me to do this either. So that's kind of the idea for this uh, yeah, free will that, light. Yeah, that's pretty much the idea. But to 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 come back to the idea of taking a breath, mm-hmm. of course, breathing in general is something that we are forced to do. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we die. But there's still a, a level of control mm, that we true. have over our breathing. So so I can stop breathing for a while, and, mm-hmm. and that's really under my control. And I might have all sorts of reasons for doing that. So so even these rather automatic things that we do, right. we can take under control. And this is, again, something that we learn from the cognitive sciences, and this is very useful for mm-hmm. thinking about free will, is that many actions that we do, that even, even the ones that we kind of stereotypically consider to be free actions, they are not consciously initiated. They are something that we do, but we can consciously control them nevertheless, so we can take them into conscious control. Mm-hmm. So so this is a very kind of interesting fact about us human beings, that, that most of our actions, they just come into existence right. without conscious awareness or anything like that. But we can take them under conscious control and we can consider them uh, from a kind of conscious point of view. Mm-hmm. And this is, this, this is, again, something that I think the free will light view can incorporate. Right. Okay. So that's the first view. So now what's the, what's the second of the three views? So, so we could call the second view free will regular. Mm-hmm. So you take the first view, but you have to add something to it. And a number of philosophers think that it's not enough that you act rationally. You, in order for you to have free will, wh- what you have to have is some sort of independence from prior causation. Okay. In such a way that when you're making choices, uh, when you're making everyday choices, for instance, you have to have access to kind of genuinely metaphysically alternative possibilities. Okay. So, so the idea there is that 
in addition to making rational choices, uh, sometimes you end up in situations where the choice that you make somehow determines the, the future of the world. Mm-hmm. And and I can make a choice between going to have ice cream and, and not going. Right. And if I make the choice, then there's nothing else in the world that determines uh, the outcome. So it has to somehow be my choice. It can't be my reasons. It can't be anything else. So, so, so this idea of having access to alternative possibilities is something that, that, that's, uh, that another, a number of people add to free will light. And this becomes the free will regular view. So free will light plus the ability to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in free will light, I'm the source of my actions. Uh, it's not something inter- uh, internal compulsing me to do this. It's nothing external like coercing me to do this. And then with free will regular, I add on to that. I've got this ability to do otherwise. The future is open in some sense that like history is not already written. Uh, something that I do brings about a particular course of action that brings about a particular history. A history could have gone either way. Yes, that's that's one way of putting it. And and sometimes philosophers make a distinction between two kinds of freedom in this context. Okay. And one is the source hood or mm-hmm. source freedom that you already mentioned that 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 I'm the source of my actions. But there's also another type of freedom that philosophers sometimes call leeway freedom. Mm-hmm. And then this the leeway freedom is this ability to make a difference ah, uh, in okay. this making choices kind of way. Uh, in in a rather robust, metaphysically robust way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I think it's quite useful to think of the in these terms. So one on the one hand, source freedom, and then on the other hand, leeway freedom. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, well, what kind of conditions one needs to put in in order to get those right. those, those kinds of of freedom? Okay, so now we've got regular. So what's the third kind of analysis of freedom? So we could call that free will premium. Okay, That's premium in the sense that this is usually the kind of high standard or the gold standard. If we could get this, it would be quite cool. So so many people think that this this is... This free will premium is the kind of freedom that we really want, mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the great freedom that we're looking for. And the idea there is that uh, you take free will light and then you take free will regular as well, but you have to add something more. So it's not enough that you, have, you act rationally and you have a choice, but you have to have a very specific relationship to yourself mm, in okay. free will premium. And the idea is that, that because the sources of your actions are in, 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 in you, those sources of your actions have to be under your control. Okay. So the idea is that, that that you have this kind of interterministic choice in terms of your own character. So you shape yourself. The kinds of actions that you uh, do uh, in your life, uh, they shape your character, they shape the way that you are. Uh, eventually making you a, a specific kind of person. And, and it's really up to you how you shape yourself. And then when you act, your actions are products of the person that you yourself have shaped. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is the kind of premium, the high standard uh, idea. And of course, then the question is whether this is compatible with what, what we know about human decision-making, right. uh, human histories, whether it's compatible with determinism and, and th- things like that. So all sorts of questions rise. But a number of people think that this is the this is the the best kind of freedom mm-hmm. we might want. Right. Okay. So we've got free will, light, regular, and premium. Okay. So, so now that we've got that, I want to get into something you just mentioned here about determinism, because a lot a major issue in contemporary philosophy is that once you kind of decide on what you think free will is, then you have to ask: Is free will compatible with determinism? 
And so what I, what I want us to do right now is kind of ask, what are the different kinds of determinism that we have to consider here? It's quite useful to, to distinguish a number of questions about free will. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very important for for having a clear discussion about these things, because people tend to mess these different questions up. So one has to, as, as, as you already said, one has to first ask, what's the thing that we're talking about when we're talking about free will? Mm-hmm. So what what is that? That's That's question number one. The second question is whether free will is uh, compatible with determinism, which is a different question than the first one. Right. And the way that you answer the first question has clear implications in, in, in terms of the third. Right. So so you see people making various moves about the compatibility or incompatibility on the basis of how they understand what free will is. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to play these two games kind of separately, uh, at least to, to some extent. So the question of compatibility is the question of whether free will then is compatible with determinism. And there are a number of ways of of looking at this. So we have light, regular, and premium. Mm -hmm. Usually the way that it goes is that people who opt for the compatibility, who who defend the compatibility of various kinds of determinism and free will, uh, they go for free will light. And they say, well, there's nothing in free will light that is ruled out by determinism. And then people have a lot of debates about whether free will regular is compatible with determinism. And this is this is, I guess, the classical debate about free will. If, mm-hmm. if there's the if in philosophy, if there's a problem of free will, the this is the problem. The problem right. okay. is the compatibility of determinism and free will regular. Okay, that's the that's the the, the question of, of free will. And then finally, uh, many people or most people who defend free will premium say that well, this is not. compatible with determinism Mm -hmm. but coming back to the idea of determinism itself right it's quite important because we have a lot of intuitive ideas of what determinism means but it's not at all clear that those intuitive ideas are actually accurate Mm -hmm. so so in order for us to make sense we have to make a couple of distinctions so so the most general version of determinism and the kind of determinism that people usually worry about is something that we could call physical determinism or causal determinism and there are many ways of, of, of fleshing it out, but the basic idea is something like this, that at, at one moment in time, whatever has happened before that moment in time, uh, all the causal relationships, everything that's there, uh, that necessitates only one future. So mm-hmm. only one future is, is possible given the past that we have. So, so this is a very crude way of, of framing it, uh, but this is one uh, and this is this is a way that a lot of people talk about mm-hmm. determinism. So, so whatever the past is, the past differ, uh, uh, the past causes a unique future. Right. Everything that's there in the past. Right. So, say I, I pressed pause on 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 time at the moment and just said, okay, everything up to this moment now, that's going to determine one particular outcome, and there's only one outcome that could happen after this after this moment. That's the idea? Yes, that is pretty much the idea. But it's it's important to keep this idea separate from other ways of talking about determinism. Mm-hmm. So in science, uh, people use determinism in all sorts of different ways, and yeah. they don't necessarily mean this. One way to do this, uh, one, one kind of common way of using the word determinism is to refer to various kinds of systems and systems theories. And, and if a system is deterministic, what it usually means is that if you have a set of, of prior conditions or kind of starting conditions for the system or the mechanism, when you press play, given the 
the the basic assumptions or the basic uh, uh, the basic properties of the system it always produces the same result mm-hmm. so then the system is deterministic but that's of course neutral in terms of whether the whole physical reality is deterministic so you might have deterministic systems in an indeterministic universe right. in an indeterministic world so so that's not a worry uh, that people have but a worry that people might have in terms of free will is that it might be the case uh, that the world as a whole is causally indeterministic. So, so there's causal indeterminism in the world, but the, the features of the world that are relevant for things like free will, let's say human brains and human bodies and human environments, they still work in a deterministic fashion. Right. Okay. So if there's determinism, indeterminism in some godforsaken planet, mm-hmm. uh, in the, the way that the grain works there or, or something like that, it doesn't help us in terms of free will. Right. So, so if we want an indeterminism with, that is uh, relevant for free, free will, we have to be able to locate that indeterminism in something that's relevant for free will, mm-hmm. like brains and human environments and right. things like that. So, so this is something that philosophers have recently kind of pointed out, and I think it's it, it's it's a useful distinction to have. And sometimes people talk about this latter form of determinism as something like neurobiological determinism okay. or, or something like that, or near determinism that that Honderich, the philosopher, says that that we might we might live in a world which is near deterministic mm-hmm. that the the macro level and the the cellular level things that happen in our brains and our bodies are pretty much deterministic although there might be some indeterminism on the basic physical level okay so like uh, something on the quantum level yeah but it gets some, canceled out though when i work my way up uh, to bigger yeah, things some, some something like that okay because we have some decent we have decent evidence uh, that the kinds of biological systems that we are our brains things like that they work in pretty law-like fashion mm-hmm. i mean it, it's not like they they work in a random fashion they, they work in a pretty predictable fashion so though this this gives us some evidence to think that perhaps we are kind of near deterministic systems and and finally uh, there is a there's a form of determinism uh, which is let's say theological mm-hmm. or metaphysical so some people call this theological determinism some people call this divine determinism and there the idea is that that there exists a, a god and a theistic god and whatever god uh, decrees or wills or wants or creates uh, this is the the feature that um, that provides this kind of necessitating factor in in the world. So so God has created the world such that it it can go one way, mm-hmm. and and it's not because not necessarily because of the physical structure or anything like that. What God wills that happens, and then everything that happens is because of this God willing. Uh, God's God's willing of it, or, or, or something like that. Again, there are various ways of making this work. Sure, one is to combine it with kind of causal physical determinism. Say that God has set up the physical laws and and things like that, um, and then then you would combine uh, divine determinism and causal determinism. But that's not necessary, really. Right. So you could independently, I think, defend divine determinism without defending physical or causal determinism. And people actually debate whether whether they are the same in the sense that they have the same impact on free will, for mm-hmm. instance. And that's a big debate by itself. Sure. So, Aku, this was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for helping me understand some of these issues about free will today. Thanks. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on free will and theological determinism. 